The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and security clearance consultant, Sean Bigley. Jobs.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited for today's interview. We actually set this up. I can't remember, Jeffrey, when when you reached out to me about your newest book. And we've read all of your books over here at Clearance Jobs. But it was very timely with Insider Threat being in the news. So you have a new book, Establish an Insider Threat Program under the NISPOM. And Jeff Bennett is here to chat with us today about it. He's a security expert. I know him from his Army background, but he's also worked within the government and a number of major clear defense contractors, providing a lot of expertise and insight across the security field. So I really appreciate your taking the time to chat with me today. Jeff. Thank you. It's great to be here for the second time. I appreciate, Lindy, your support of my books and the opportunity to interview with you. Establishing an insider threat program under the NISPOM. So this has been a requirement that's been baked into policy for a while now. We see it ever evolving, ever changing. Why is it this book? Why now? And why is this kind of an important read for folks who might be operating under the NISPOM? I started writing the book wondering, you know, how do we establish this insider threat program and why should we if we have the NISPOM in place? I mean, it's a good authoritative guideline on how we protect classified information. And so I started interviewing FSOs and asking them, how are they interpreting the requirement for an insider threat program? I started taking online training through all the resources and going to briefings. And I started noticing a common theme a lot of the training and the FSOs are focusing on the 13 adjudicated criteria. Those are very important. I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying you should leverage it, but not lead in with it. Because a lot of times this training that I've taken suggests that if you do use that, you need to consult with legal and with ethics so that you don't violate your employee rights. The focus that I chose is to focus on the information and not the employee's you may have issues with employees, but the 13 adjudicated criteria are really good at determining risk to that classified information from the vetted employee. However, most of those criteria can't be used to determine who your insider threat might be. For example, you know, I might get continuous DUIs or I might have uh, drug issues, but it doesn't mean I'm going to spy and steal your information. You should definitely fire me and get rid of me. But <laughs> if, if I can't, perform accordingly, or if I'm using my computer for gambling or for checking my stocks all the time, right? If I'm not working properly, that's a behavioral issue, not an espionage issue. And so I wanted to give the employees, uh, the FSOs or security specialists, an opportunity or permission to just focus on the information. The other stuff will fall out. So to answer the question, why, if we have the NISPOM, do we need an insider threat program? Well, the NISPOM and DOD guidance as well will have you build a facility that protects classified information from the outsider. You know, our families can't get in unless they have permission 
we have cleared employees with badges that can get in. When was the last time we've heard of somebody breaking into a defense contractor or a government facility and walking out with the secrets? The news we're getting is that trusted employees are walking out with those secrets and providing it on the internet or to their handlers. That's an interesting way to look at it. I love how you're talking about the information and not necessarily the individual. So kind of talk about, you know, how you came to that approach and why looking at information is a better launching point. for. I think I mentioned to you earlier, if I were writing this book for, and I probably will rewrite this book for commercial entities, for nonprofit organizations, churches, and things, I would call it an information protection program. A lot of times I work with a lot of scientists, researchers, designers, and builders in my career. Usually what happens is the government will put out a contract for engineering services and the contractor will build a weapon system or a capability or provide services under that contract. And they'll put out what might or might not be classified. They might even give you some government fun, government information that you should protect. And the FSOs and security specialists do that really well. But keeping in mind that they are staff officers in many cases, sometimes if you're small enough, you're the FSO, CEO, engineer, and everything in your company. But if you're a staff officer, sometimes you have good access to that information the government provides. And you can assist with protecting it. But the developers really understand need to know. They understand the intimate details of their projects they're working on. They understand it very well, but often they can't communicate it. But they're the first to realize when it's been released inappropriately. Hey, that's our stuff. We should have been protecting it. And so the way I see it, the FSO can assist with their training and their skills to pull out this information, identify it, protect it. Well, and I love how you talk about in the book, why would folks want another resource for insider risk or insider threat beyond the NISPOM? I think the government has done a better job about clarifying and caveating that the NISPOM is not an end-all be-all. If your company is only doing the minimum requirements of the NISPOM or of CMMC or whatever the requirement is, you might not be prepped for the current landscape. And you're going to see some definitions in the NISPOM that you're going to be required to comply with. But like you note, there's also a lot of flexibility in terms of the roles you assign and your working group and things like that. So yeah, and I'll, and I'll use that similar analogy with technology. A lot of people go out and say, hey, I have an insider threat program. They'll use a third party technology or a software and they'll call that their insider threat program. Many people will brief that. Those are good technology, good software. But you know, if you build a secure room and you don't put anything inside of it, it's not doing much good. So if you buy this technology and you don't identify what needs to be protected in there, it's not that good. With these insider threat working groups, you would have the facility security officer who may facilitate it. And then you would have the appropriate people in that meeting who works on that product. Maybe it's a guidance system. And you would facilitate in that meeting, hey, what do you see as sense of information in this system that you're developing? What do you feel like that we need to protect a little bit better? And who needs access to that information? For example, the company's chief financial officer will need financial reports to be able to report and understand how their business is doing. But do they need to know who is financing that project, for example? How much information about our project should we give away? A lot of FSOs and people that I talk to who don't understand, need to know, understand that NISPOM says to be able to access classified information, you should have a clearance, you should have the SF-312 briefing, and need to know. 
But a lot of people think one plus two equals three, the briefing plus the clearance equals need to know, but that's not the case. And then so some people who say, no, Jeff, we do better. We do by contract. I said, contract number is your need to know. I said, a lot of times that does work, but sometimes contracts have different task orders or, or different work products, such as a software developer or a hardware developer. Does a hardware developer need to know the intimate details of how the software is developed? And does a software developer need to know the capabilities of this system, or do they just need to know how their software needs to work inside that system? And so these working groups should be able to have those discussions, determine what is sensitive based on those discussions, determine who needs access to it, and determine how to protect it, and then train the force on that. And then use that working group to develop incident responses and file reports as needed. I love that. You're so timely, Jeff, talking about need to know, because this has like been our key mantra with clearance jobs. Having a security clearance does not give you need to know. So, and I love that you, you can, you know, that's not carte blanche, like need to know. I think you make a good point. It's not necessarily even based on the contract. Like we have to look a lot more nuanced at what need to know means and protecting classified information at the data set or at the information set is so important. Talk to that a little bit more when it comes to an insider threat program. What are some of the key takeaways for folks who are trying to address that need to know piece with their insider risk? I like program? to say, for example, for need to know, what is your work product? Instead of basing it on a broad scope like a contract, a contract could be an entire complicated system. But if you're only working on one aspect of that, that system, draw out from those individuals. So you might start out with a large working group of the whole system. Then you might realize, okay, not everybody needs to know how everything about the system. So let's break it up. Let's break it up into the navigation system. Those people who work on that, the propulsion system, for example, if I'm talking about an airplane, the people working on the propulsion system don't need to know if there are, is proprietary information or classified information, particulars about that navigation system and its capabilities that might be unique. And the navigation developers may not need to know about the special engine that you're using or the, or the fuel that you're developing for it. So this works again in, in cases of can be applied in many cases, not only to defense contractors, but even a sales company, for example, who has a large territory. You know, the first thing that we do when we leave a job, we take our stuff with us, right? That could be in a sales company, could be the customer list. Customer lists are very important. Does a salesperson from one territory need to know the customer list from the other territory? In, in, or, or does the manager need to know all that information? So when you're determining need to know, at least in a defense contractor, you might start out with, okay, I have a CEO, I have a CFO, I have an FSO, an insider threat protection officer. I have program manager for, for the propulsion and program manager for the navigation system. And then I have this information about the navigation system and I have this information about the propulsion system. What does the CEO need to know? What does the FSO need to know? Do they really need, they may have access to it, but do they need to know these intimate details or just what they should know to help me protect it or should know to run this company? You know, we, we often hear that story about the executive assistant who leaves a soda company and goes to their competitor with a secret formula from that soda company. Why does the executive assistant have that access to that information? And, and so what we want to do is just logically think about the information and who works with it. If they don't work with it, they don't need access to it. And if they ask for it, that's a trigger. 
They could be in ignorance, but if they keep asking for it, there might be a reason. No, I love that you flagged that. I was just in a conversation with somebody talking about that exact thing. Like how much information does the CEO need to know? Or same with board members, right? We have a lot of our entities around us. I know that's been a topic of security clearance reform efforts, how to get key management personnel or how do we clear those folks? You know, my philosophy sometimes around the vetting scenario of it, I think vetting people is always a good idea. Then we've actually created punitive options for if they disclose or misuse, then we create training requirements for them. But like you said, the need to know piece of it still remains key. Right. Yeah. And one of my colleagues says, you know, Jeff, it's not that we have too many people cleared. It shouldn't matter if you have a need to know program established and a good information protection program. That way, if you have an issue with too many people cleared, we, at least you can control who accesses it in an intelligent way. So I want to talk about reporting. You have a whole chapter on reporting in this. This is always a topic in a clearance job. So we know kind of folks operating under the NISPOM manual are going to be a key audience for this. Folks looking at having an insider threat program, you know, again, commercial or, or government are kind of looking at those reporting requirements specific to government contractors and seed three, I think still create some confusion. And we even just see in, in leak cases, a lot of times there is information that is noted and that is reported. Are there best practices for a reporting framework? Have companies done really well? I don't think there is a is one way to do it, right? You just have to report. But a lot of folks will ask, well, how do we do that? I'm like, well, you as a company organization, do you have an anonymous email? Do you report to the security officer? Do folks know who their security officer is, who they should report things to? Like those are, can you talk to that? Yeah. The so the reporting piece, piece again, I focus this strictly on classified information. And so the way I like to, to work with my clients is, every output becomes an input to the next step. And so I want to leverage everything that, that we have already not create additional work for the FSO. I'm a big advocate is if you are a clear defense contractor under NISPOM establishing an insider threat program, the FSO or somebody that works with the FSO should be the ITPSO because they are running that security program to protect classified information. However, if you're going to expand past classified information into CUI, ITAR, proprietary data, you, you might want to have a, a larger ITPSO. But as far as reporting, I would leverage the current reporting requirements. We already know that espionage needs to be reported and that suspected security violations need to be reported. So a lot of insider threat violations are going to be security violations, or if you actually catch an insider walking out with something is going to be a security violation slash espionage issue. So those reports, I'm going to say, report it to the FSO. Don't go straight to the FBI. Uh, Ms. Palm says go to FBI, but use your chain of command unless your chain of command is the issue. <laughs> and then, um, So leverage those reporting processes that are in place that'll make your life so much easier. And I'm also a big advocate of you know, you have possessing facilities that have classified information on site, but even non-possessing facilities should have an insider threat program. My buddy has one. He's got two people in his company. They, you've got to have one. Perhaps maybe you're a non-possessing company, but your employees sit and do classified work at another location. Have your IT insider threat program working group coordinate with the other insider threat program working group, and maybe you can share data as it relates to information or potential violations. And so you become a stronger team that way. But but with the reporting, the CAD reporting, the required adverse information reporting, those fit under the insider threat program reporting guidelines. 
So we talked a little earlier about insider threat training. This is kind of a, a topic, I think, an area of low-hanging fruit for a lot of companies maybe that have been potentially set something up when those requirements first came into place. But probably a lot of, uh, again, uh, I think it's a good time to update those even now. And I think even what you said here about protecting information is a good piece of it. Because, again, a lot of those are focusing on human behavior and individuals, which are true, but we're not necessarily training on protecting the information piece of it. So can you talk a little bit about the training side of an insider risk management program? There are many training requirements put on cleared employees. You know, you might have the SF312 briefing as well as security awareness training, but each one of those requires an insider threat module. And then there's the insider threat training on top of it. So I would definitely have that insider threat program working group develop that training and make it specific as as possible to that information you're trying to protect. That way, you know, you've been in a cleared employee for 20 years and you're still getting briefings on what secret, top secret and confidential means, right? You're like, you're pulling your hair out. Like, can I have something more advanced, more to my skill level? And so you have leverage with these insider threat program training to really be specific with your employees. And so what you might want to do is once you establish your insider threat program, train them on that program, train them what to report, when to report, how to report it, how to recognize an insider threat incident. And it should begin with, hey, we've identified this information as classified. You have access to this. You know your need to know. Anything happen outside of this, then you um, report it. A separate insider threat program working group training for those people who work on the working group. Awesome. Well, those are my only questions. Is there anything we didn't get to or address about your new book or about even this hot topic of insider threat? That you so if you have any today? questions about establishing an insider threat program, I can assist you with doing that. I, I do that a lot or an information protection program. If you want to try it yourself, on my website, redbikepublishing.com slash insider threat program. I sell my book there, but also I have a lot of required things for you to use, download, and, and modify. For example, I, ha I do have insider threat program training for employees, as well as tools and templates that you can download, including appointment memos, insider threat program working group, assembly memos, and also agendas and matrices that you can use to fill out to identify what needs to be protected and who should access it. Awesome. I love it. Now is a good time. If you have not refreshed your insider threat training program, do it now. And I do like, I think, I think the focus on need to know and information protection is key and is a real pivot that we need to make in terms of how we're addressing this. So I appreciate your time so much, Jeff. Thank you for your contributions. I always appreciate your writing and appreciate your joining us to chat about the book. You're listening to Security Clearance in Security. I'm Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about SARS, and Lindy, no, not the early 2000s virus SARS, suspicious activity report. <laughs> and this is something that, uh, for those of you listening who are not familiar with the term, is sort of a term of art. It's brought about by a federal law called the BSA or the Bank Secrecy Act. And essentially what it is, is financial institutions who process transactions are required to report to the government if a transaction meets certain criteria that is deemed suspicious. And what that criteria is can be very broad, sometimes very vague, and it can sweep up a lot of 
activity that is entirely legal. But at the end of the day, the government feels like, I guess, that you know they would rather have more information than less. And so, you know, Lindy, I think this is something we talked about previously in a different context. And I, I recall, I think, sharing a story with you about how when I was a background investigator many, many years ago, I would sometimes be tasked with the the job of confronting security clearance applicants about suspicious activity reports. And it was a somewhat amusing part of the job at times because the look on people's faces when you trotted out some old financial transaction that they had no idea was going to come back to haunt them was pretty entertaining. That being said, uh, you know, the vast majority of the time, there were perfectly reasonable explanations for this. So have you seen any cases come up at either at Doha or at the Department of Energy where they publish their security clearance hearings about SARS? Well, you've out-acronymed me because I feel like the government does not necessarily provide the designations as clearly as you stated here. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But a lot of times, you know, we see financial issues far and above top cause of clearance denial and revocation. If you look across the Doha cases, what the issues that are being pulled are around financial issues, but it is generally an issue of debt or delinquent accounts and not an issue of purchases or suspicious financial activity, like through banking reports. So I actually personally, I can't recall having reviewed one and I, and I failed to review all of the Doha cases prior to this call. So you're going to have to forgive me. I'm sure they're out there. They're certainly like business. You don't read every single one, Lindy? <laughs> I mean, I try. I read close to all of them, but I just, my memory, they don't, they don't all stay there. So, cause I was trying to think, thinking through this, so many are financial. So they're financial con- considerations, denials, but I can't recall seeing the exact, the same exact verbiage around a suspicious activity report coming up in terms of the case. But I don't know if it's because they're using, you know, a different, different terminology and what the Doha case is reporting on, I don't see those exact red flags. It's generally, again, a, a personal finance issue around debt and inability to pay things because I haven't seen the exact examples of, oh, they're pulling out and see, again, you've made that deposit of over $10,000 and they're questioning why that happened and it results in a doubt. And now maybe that's because it's being addressed in the at the investigation stage, right? We only see the Doha cases when it's the point of denial. So if you have any justifiable reason behind those transactions, it's right. not good. I'm not going to be able to read about it in the Doha case. I mean, if you're a baller, be a baller. If you got some uh, some big money moves happening, I don't have that problem. I'm well with the, with the, below the threshold. If you would like, uh, where's my Venmo? If you would like to make an anonymous deposit into my account, not China or Russia, but like if you're an American and you want to give me some money, by all means, I don't have those kind of experiences. But do you have like examples to mind that you've seen where it has been yeah. this deposit amount? Yeah. So you're right. I mean, first of all, people freak out sometimes when they hear about these things because they go, oh my gosh, you know, the government's going to be questioning financial transactions that I made and I've got some that look a little shady and what am I going to do? And and I mean, I I used to get calls like this, you know, semi-regularly and some of it was conspiracy theory stuff like, no, the government is not as a general rule of thumb prying into your bank accounts just because you're applying for a security clearance. They're not monitoring your phone calls. Like I would get, you know, calls from people who were concerned about all that kind of stuff all the time. And, you know, the government's following me and no, they're not. They're <laughs> they're generally, if they're following you, you have bigger problems than a security clearance. But suffice it to say, you know, to your point, 
the vast majority of these things do get sort of filtered out in the investigative process because most people do have reasonable explanations. It's the ones that not necessarily have a non-credible explanation, but bring out some other problem that become an issue for people. So where I have seen this come up typically is gambling problems. A lot of people don't realize that casinos are actually required to file SARS, as are certain online betting platforms, I believe, and any other entity that's processing you know, cash transactions. And so where I have seen this come up is on rare occasion, somebody who has a real gambling problem, you know, and they're getting in over their head financially and or they're not paying taxes on winnings that they're making. And so there's a variety of contexts that that comes up. But usually if, you know, somebody's having an issue with a clearance because of a SAR, there's sort of a bigger problem. I don't I mean, it is like I always appreciate these nuanced topics that we haven't covered before, because I know we talked about FinCEN rapport and the and the financing piece of it. And just knowing that there is this government entity that is tracking this stuff, I find reassuring. I guess I'm the target demographic completely because it does not bother me. That the government's tracking these major, you know, if, if we have things as significant, because, again, maybe I know enough about the process to know if you even fall under this threshold. If you have any documentation that can mitigate it, you'll be able to mitigate. I mean, those issues. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that's interesting about this is, you know, n- number one, it's obviously been in the news uh, lately as a result of the Hunter Biden investigations and things like that. And, you know, I think people may not necessarily realize that that's actually what we're talking about here. SARS, the Treasury Department keeps records of these things. And that's what Congress is using right now, you know, as part of this investigation. It does also ensnare a lot of other people as well. And, uh, you know, it's, I've seen cases of it where people have been doing things like, you know, churning credit cards and they're accruing tons and tons of points and they're, you know, going out and purchasing gift cards just so that they can churn the points um, and, you know, then turning around and, and cashing those in for money orders and then taking the money orders to the post office and paying off the credit card charges. I mean, I wrote an article about that. There's a lot of like weird situations where this comes up and people don't really appreciate the fact that there is a record out there. So again, the fact that there's a record in and of itself isn't really a problem as long as you have a credible explanation for it. But if you're concerned about FinCEN, which I think a lot of people are not thrilled with the prospect of the government prying into their financial transactions, uh, Lindy, you're probably one of the exceptions there. But I I think a lot of us are a a little more skeptical of uh, government influence. I have no finances, Sean. This is a poor person problem. So... (laughs) There, there you go. I won't tell them about your millions in crypto parked overseas. I know. Again, send it to me, people. I'll give you my bed. There you have it. I think for the most of us, there's not much here to worry about, but it, it behooves everybody to, if nothing else, be aware that this is a thing. And if you get a question during your background investigation about some old random transaction, now you know where the information came from and you know what to do about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. 
and security clearance consultant, Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.